Hello, and welcome to the Library Coven, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly YA fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And in today's episode, we're discussing A Snake Falls to Earth by Darcy Little Badger. Worlds collide when a group of animal spirits, including a animal people, including a cottonmouth snake, a pair of coyote twins, a cooper's hawk, and a magpie, cross over to the human world in order to save their wee toad friend from death and slash extinction. Young human Nina and her family, based in South Texas, are inextricably tied up in this multi-species adventure. Let's do it. Initial reactions. Would you like to go first? I guess because I forgot <laughs> because to write nothing. <laughs> Damn it. I wrote everything else and forgot mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this book. I think I was just like, it was one of my first reads of 2023. And I think I was just like hungry for, I don't know, like something hopeful, I guess. And that's definitely what this book was. I loved all the character building, the interactions, the like how otherworldly and strange Darcy Little Badger is able to make, um, you know, readers or make make me feel, you know, like I'm transported to a world that's so different and with people slash beings that are, you know, just make you shift your perspective a little bit. Um, I thought it was really well written. I have a lot of thoughts. Excited to talk about it. What about you? Okay, let me start with saying <laughs> we're recording this in January, January 14th. Um, and I think I read this book back in November for the award committee. So I'm hopeful I don't forget too much, but Kelly might need to prompt me. <laughs> slash help. I'll do my best. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, but I did love this book and it made the short list for the committee I was on um, for the Sibyls Award. And I was so happy to see it win a Newbery honor. Um, I think Darcy Little Badger can just take all my money slash all the space on my hold list for the library um, (laughs) because I would read whatever she writes. Her storytelling ability is amazing and I just love reading the stories and the world she creates. Um, It was just such a fun book and I think like a good book for the same audience as A Lots Away but also might fill the needs of like an older audience a little bit more. Completely agree. recommend if you like probably definitely a lots away which we did an episode about (laughs) although i think this book like i just mentioned might appeal to a wider audience it feels like it's like maybe more mature than like the characters are older than in a lots away so it might appeal to young adults and middle school you know like that middle grade age but i think it also appeals maybe a little more to a, a teen audience than a lots away might have I agree with you. And then I'm also thinking, like, I'm just having a hard time thinking of Rita Likes. I think because Darcy Littlebatter just has such, like, a unique voice and, mm-hmm. um, like, storytelling apparatus. Yeah, it's, like, I, I don't even know how to explain it and or, like, how to compare it. But if you, it's, like, the pacing is good. The character building is great. The, yeah. So if you like those things, read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And why we chose this book, I think just because we loved Alatsaway. Also, not that many um, Indigenous authors have been nominated for Newbery Awards, and I can talk at length about, like, racist and sexist and all kinds of issues with the Newbery Award. So I've been happy in the past few years to see it becoming a much more diverse list. Mm -hmm. Like I said, all kinds of issues, but I'm really glad because this is, like, a big deal to be nominated for a Newbery Award. Their books get bought 
like ad nauseum by libraries, by schools, they end up on reading lists. So it's kind of a big deal for um, Darcy Littlebatter to have won that award. So I was really happy to see that. So also we're reading an award winner. Yay! <laughs> and I'm sure it's won other awards too, right? It has. Okay. Mm, a ton. Okay. And I, I think it's also important speaking about like the, cause we are unfortunately in the capitalist hellscape that we are in right now, right? When it comes to publishing, it also sets precedent for other offer mm-hmm. authors, right? So it's like kicks exactly. open the door for other folks of marginalized identities, especially indigenous folks to mm-hmm. get their stories out there and start getting fucking paid instead yes. of like white culture vultures paid <laughs> to steal the stuff. <laughs> we love to see something genuine and real. <laughs> Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. One of the things that I really enjoyed about this story is that it takes place both in our world and the world of the animal people, which is basically like our world, but it hasn't been like fucked up by humans. <laughs> um, so I liked that how the place where the animal people animal people live was called the world of monsters and spirits. I don't know why, but I just like really liked that turn of phrase from the story. Um, so yeah, it was interesting. I don't think it's not like it's kind of like a portal world which we get in some books but like in the opposite direction of what we normally see it being which I thought was really different yes we had like two diverging different storylines on different timelines also Mm -hmm. and then they came together Mm -hmm. which was beautiful I loved how that worked yeah Yeah, it was portal fantasy ish too yeah I completely agree with that and one of the most it seemed like important components in the human world at least no I would say like in both worlds is like the like the land is such a protagonist. Mm-hmm. Like when we are with Ollie, the cotton mouth, our cotton mouth protagonist friend, like going down the river and finding a sun rock and going through the forest. And it's just like so evocative of all these different places. It really like puts you there. And then on the human side of things, there's this multi-generational connection that like precedes made up things like borders and will also outlast them, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, with Nina and her family and this connection to this land in so-called South Texas. And the like the well is actually a connection to the reflecting world. So there's like our literal portal and a door yeah. to pass through. <laughs> and we see that there's been like Nina's dad who has a bookshop, which like goals, helping the spirits <laughs> read in the other world. Like, yes, <laughs> let's just do more of that. <laughs> knowledge sharing with people who deserve it yeah and so like there's this also this like temporal aspect to the world building with like the joined era versus now and so the joined era being when you know the animal people and humans coexisted on the same plane yeah I thought that was a really unique way to like tell the story um, because I don't think we we, I feel like we don't read that many books with these you know conjoining timelines but also like timelines that span so much time because like we get to be with ollie you know over a much longer period of time than we do with nina so it was a really interesting way to like tell this story oh i loved it (laughs) yes it's like it's making me think of the lost dreamer right because that's one that Mm, recently we had two converging timelines but like if one of the timelines were from one of their like mythical beings or something that had yeah. like a way different view of time and perspective mm-hmm. on the world and stuff. So maybe that's a read alike. I don't know. Yeah. 
There's also this idea we see pop up in the story that some knowledge is worth protecting, but also keeping for certain people. Um, This was really interesting when thinking about the way that some people take indigenous knowledge and turn it over to the public when it's not knowledge that's meant to be um, shared with those outside of the indigenous culture that has the knowledge. Um, And I think in white Western culture, there's this idea that all knowledge is for all people, but that seems like a form of, you know, like knowledge colonialism. Mm -hmm. Um, So I appreciated this aspect of the story because, you know, as someone in library science and information science, we think about like, how do we share information? But we don't always stop to think about like what information is being shared. Is it meant to be shared? Um, Was that the intent or is it, you know, or taking into account like the culture that it comes from. So I really like this aspect of the story. Completely, completely. And I think it's like a crucial discussion to be having in a larger sense, right? Societally, especially because like, I guess I can speak from my experience, like with white culture, especially like Western, like you were saying, like Western European, white Western culture, that's like, like plunders knowledge and thinks like Mm -hmm. it has this very like, I get to know whatever, whenever I want. And like, hence the explosion of things like the internet are like making me think that, think about that. And, and just like, and also science fiction has been treading this for a long time about like what knowledge is, you know, like with cloning and like humans playing God and different things like that. And it's like, but it's really only specific people who are doing that. Right. Yeah. And it's like white men who have like a fear, like a death fear or mm-hmm. something and and at the same time a death drive to kill or maim anything and anything anything and everyone who gets in their way to like their quest of immortality or whatever it's like so much science fiction is about this and i actually like what you were talking about makes me think about like yeah we have to consider like how did this stuff come to be known which is epistemology right where it's like how we know what we know but also like know what we know yeah the history of information and knowledge like was this plundered was mm-hmm. this like stolen was this is through whose eyes is this framed right when we were talking about the archive with legend born that's kind of you know calling that conversation back for me but yeah but yeah that there is especially in like indigenous worldviews a more way more of like a robust grasp on the like the fact that knowledge is contextual and should be contextual and like it is powerful and therefore who we share it with and under what conditions like we should be able to determine that or like in sovereign indigenous cultures should be able to ter- determine yeah. that, you know? Yeah. Um, and it kind of makes me think about, I've, I follow a few different like indigenous creators on TikTok, mostly ones who do comedy. Cause that's what I follow on TikTok. But um, there was this person and I think his name is Che Jim, like J I M and talking about like, you know, the way that, uh, dream catchers are sold at like urban outfitters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so sometimes the ways that like, you know, different cultures will take things from indigenous people and, you know, use them outside of their context. And like, how did you even learn about this? And like, you're not even doing it right anyways. So it's just funny to think about like how, like how some of that knowledge has been stolen and like, changed into something else to like make it more palatable, I think for a white audience. Well, and this also made me think of like institutions like Harvard and the news that came out recently about like the whole, like the collections of hair that they had kept Mm -hmm. from, from folks, from indigenous folks, you know, and, and like the, yeah, just how, I don't know, these institutions that are like supposedly the pinnacle of knowledge are actually also, and also knowledge, like they did genocide and colonials in pursuit of this quote unquote Mm -hmm. knowledge. Right. So it's like, yeah let's let's think about again context right and what it's being used for and by whom and if it's being weaponized yeah 
speaking of history, we see the importance of oral history as watch as we watch Nina attempt to chronicle her family's history through the videos that she makes, which initially she's just kind of making them for herself. Um, but I thought this was really interesting and maybe goes to your point, your next point about, you know, the ways that current generations might take oral history and turn it into something more permanent. Um which is helpful because like we see in the story that Nina's grandmother or great grandmother speaks a different language that like Nina isn't able to interpret and no one in her family is really able to do that. Um, And so like the ways that, you know, these oral histories or languages that, you know, and languages are lost to time. um, But the ways that we might use technology to chronicle those or keep, keep a hold of those traditions that we might have lost otherwise. Completely, completely. I'm so glad that you brought this up because like, that was one of my favorite things about the book was how technology is woven in the story. And it just felt like so organic, right? Because it, it like, but also like, it's not going to age quote unquote poorly either. Mm -hmm. It felt like universalizing and universal enough. Right. And saying like, but I, I loved how it was woven throughout the story and it was satisfying in ways that like move the plot forward too. Like, Nina with the translation app like you were talking about with her conversation in the hospital at the beginning of the story with her great-grandmother and then going back and running realizing that the apps don't have indigenous languages like Lipan mm-hmm. Apache and Hikaria Apache and then going back and she's like looking up dictionaries that are getting reconstructed and running the translation like put it, adding them to the translation app and then running it again and it's just like I I love this aspect of seeing like Nina as this like very competent technologist, researcher, linguist, essentially at this point, ethnographer, like amazing scientist, the whole like social media subplot as well um, with like how people, you know, how she's like trying to make money, but it's like exploitative and the whole contract thing. And (laughs) um, yeah, like the videos that she's making, like you said to, and that are going to have like a, a lasting impact there was one other aspect of the technology. Oh, um, no, no, never mind. I'm gonna talk about it in uh, what is the the real talk section? Never mind. Okay, we'll leave <laughs> okay, that. Okay. We'll leave that. Dangle that out there <laughs> so people listen to the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, but talking, thinking about the social media aspect. Oh, actually, did I just forget what I was gonna say? Ooh. Oh yes. Okay. Now I remember. Okay. Um, I was thinking about the social media aspect and Nina, like her use of technology throughout the story. I really like that part of her character because I think oftentimes like within Western culture, um, indigenous people are always seen as like a people of the past, almost as if they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting to have shown Nina as like this, like almost like technological, like whiz kid, you know, like she can do so many things with technology that I'm like, I couldn't even tell you like halfway how to get there other than recording things. (laughs) Um, So it's just interesting. It's like, I like that the story like shows indigenous people in like the present time using their present things, because I do think sometimes like in, you know, American culture, we always look at them as a people of the past instead of a people who are still here and fighting for these things, you know? Um, So I just really appreciated that about the story. Yeah. Think about how it's like taught to us in schools, like the curricula. It's like, oh yeah, that happened a while ago. And then... Mm -hmm dot 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 America (laughs) (laughs) let's discuss all things magic I think to many readers the animal people and their powers would be part of the magic of the story but 
like I don't know what if the story is based on um, Darcy Little Badger's own beliefs or um, the beliefs of her people. Um, I, th- I mentioned Che Jim earlier. Maybe it's Jim Che. Either way, I'll put we'll put it in the show notes. Um, but he talks a lot about like indigenous beliefs, like in a humorous way. Um, so I don't know what if this is based on folklore and what if this is like mm, belief system. Yeah, if that makes sense. Right. And I think that that, I'm really glad that you put this in here because it's like crucial to have this like pin in the discussion because especially when like juxtaposing like settler or like arrivant frameworks around Mm -hmm. like magic and science, which are like actually not that different, you know, (laughs) the same coin and also power, which I think magic is often just a metaphor for power, Mm -hmm. especially in a lot of the books that we see, but also seeing like, I don't like I'm sure I'm gonna fuck up so like call me in or whatever but like it's also careful ground to like tread on especially because like animism for example is like found in belief systems all over the world and like it holds that like way more things than just humans have souls and spirits and are protected Mm -hmm. and like vitally important like water or land itself and plants and more than human animals like etc 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 so like yeah I think some of these like I don't want to like frame things like that as like quote unquote fantasy or Mm magic you know what I mean like yeah even though for me like mad saying something is magical or like magic isn't like writing it off but I can see from Mm -hmm. like a certain perspective it is right from like a patriarchal colonialist etc etc perspective but like and the animal people seem otherworldly to Nina which is like something I do want to talk about and I found this quote on page 257 that I feel like I could just read and that explains it better than we can okay all right. It starts on page 256. This is after the crew all comes together and Nina's kind of like basking in their strangeness. And I just love this passage. Risk and Rain took turns miming, miming shock and pointing at Ollie. Nina, thoroughly impressed, had to stop herself from cooing. Good job. In the same high-pitched noise she used to praise Tightrope when he fetched a toy mouse. Tightrope is her cat. <laughs> her kitten. She hadn't quite decided yet how to view the animal people. On the one hand, there was an exceptional beauty about them, an otherworldliness. They're quote-unquote human bodies moved across the world with an unusual ease as if earth's gravity did not pull them too tightly and their voices had a keenly musical quality it wasn't that the animal people barked out literal instrumental notes or sang when they spoke rather their words ignited emotional responses in nina that had previous emotional responses nina had previously only experienced through music when they were worried she experienced the squeal of violins the quick heartbeat thrum of a thriller soundtrack Risk and Rain's bickering had the impact of a rattling gourd or a, and a snare drum. Ollie's hopeful questions were reminiscent of the lo-fi hip-hop Nina played when she studied. On the other hand, in many ways, their facial expressions and behavior reminded her of their animals. That, more than anything, made Nina's heart sting with affection for her new friends. She'd known them less than 24 hours and was already willing to drop everything in the middle of hurricane season just to help them save a toad. <laughs> so good. Yeah, and I like that you point out that, like, for Nina, this does seem fantastical in the similar way that it probably does to us, you know, and it might be to other people who don't have, you know, indigenous knowledges. Um, But I appreciate this, and I think we see it in other books we've read, like, um, uh, now I can't remember anything we've ever read, ever. Um, (laughs) Children of Blood and Bone, which is We've never read any books. (laughs) We've never read any books, which is based on, like, the Orisha, which is a belief, you know, like, they are part of a belief system. So sometimes I think when authors are bringing in their own belief systems or the belief systems of their families or their culture, um, to us it might seem 
more fantastical than it might seem to other people yes so i just want to like recognize that you said it way better than i did thank you (laughs) (laughs) and like kind of on this note like speaking of animal people and like i know that in past we've been like messing around with like what would your magic smell like what would it feel like what would it look like and what we're not gonna do is go into the territory of what would your animal person form be because (laughs) that feels like quote unquote what your spirit animal is and Mm -hmm, that's just mm -hmm. like some settler colonizer culture vulture trash and we're not into that here so i just wanted to like put that here because that's where this could have gone and it's not going there because perfect we're not we're not <laughs> it's doing not it. necessary <laughs> nope we've already kind of mentioned it but we see that the animal people die in their world um when their counterparts go extinct on earth or in our world i guess maybe they are still on earth but in a different dimension i don't really understand how that works but we see this with ami the frog who is like dying because his counterparts in our world are going extinct because of climate change (laughs) the the little dallas toad is who we figure out that it is right Mm -hmm. and just like i thought that the friendship between ollie and ami was like so cute and they just like enjoyed each other's presence it is so wholesome just like oh my god so cute so sweet it reminds me of like frog and toad literally frog and toad Mm. the books love those books um (laughs) still do have several but yeah that and i guess what I appreciate about this aspect of the story is it shows that these multiple dimensions, worlds or whatever are actually very intimately connected, right? Mm -hmm. Because what's going on on earth is what spurs Ollie to get everyone together and rally everyone to go like literally cross into the sun. Yeah. Ride a massive ram into the sun (laughs) and like go between worlds. And like the motivation for all the characters was very clear. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. We also have, I think, one of the, maybe the most, like, obviously or apparently magical aspect of the book was these, like, world-shaping acts where it's, like, people can do, like, Ollie can do water magic because he's connected to the water. He's a swimming, Mm -hmm. an aquatic snake or a semi-aquatic snake. And then also the, like, capturing the tornado in the nesting doll toy Mm -hmm. that then, like, gets rid of the shitty neighbor, which we'll talk about soon. (laughs) And then this like power is passed down to people's descendants, right? Because we learned that Nina's family is actually a long time ago. Nina had an ancestor from the reflecting mm-hmm. world who was an animal person. Um, and I liked how that was just like hung out there and like shows the connection, right? Between the, actually the, or the animal world or reflecting world and our world. So it kind of connects to the previous points we were talking about as well. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, good and evil in our segment. Get me Cal the Wren, Wren, aka <laughs> Knives Out. <laughs> um, humans, because like we are polluting the planet and like animals are dying and the climate is fucked. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, insert climate change diatribe rant. Yes. Yes. And also like i think it's important to point out that it's like mostly a few humans and systems which i'm like i'm i know that you know but also it's like i have to remind myself that when i get into like this spiral of like oh my god nothing is possible to do at any point ever i have no agency etc etc so like i don't know holding the kind of almost paradoxical thing of like yes i have agency and also it's like massive corporations that are doing the biggest damage and fucking people like elon musk or whatever the fuck Um, and your billionaires who can go fuck off speaking of which colonization and genocide obviously 
villains. Mm-hmm. Especially, I thought like the one of the most like tangible impacts that we see in the novel uh, being explored in the novel is the connection to language, which mm-hmm. we talked about a little bit before. And you mentioned like there there weren't dictionaries or like the translation app couldn't handle these other languages. Yeah. And yeah, colonization and genocide, part of their, like how they work is like cultural and linguistic erasure. All, you know, not just disappearing people, but disappearing entire, like language is like a, a way that you view the world also, yeah. right? So it's also, you know, a way of, of attempting to erase their, their cultures. And then I appreciated the like, like how important it is to Nina and how much work she does and how she gets to connect with the internet and technology to yeah. other people doing this important like language rematriation, like reconstruction work. And finally, or not finally, I guess finally, (laughs) we can talk about, I don't know, like shitty dudes like Paul and Dave, which are like, I love these like basic as milk toast names. Also, they're perfect. Of course. Yeah. Perfect. Just like people, I don't know, just exploiting other folks and wielding their power like a weapon and just like, you know, gross. Yeah. Agreed. I love how Dave got his comeuppance with Magpie. Uh, Magpie was like a really, like a good narrative trick, right? Because then she could And go, like a complicated character. Yeah. I would say. Totally. Totally. So yeah, more more people redistributing all of their internet money. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you run into Mr. Beast, sometimes he just gives him people thousands of dollars. I don't know where they get this money from. Uh, I guess sponsors or something, but... Ads? Yeah, I don't know. I actually don't know what Mr. Beast does. I just know, I just see him come up on my TikTok where he's like, hey, will you go to France and get me a baguette? And he like gives people like $10,000 when they come back. And I'm just like, huh, okay. (laughs) Wow. It's just like, what is all this navel-gazy, bizarre, like clickbaity business? You know, it's just- Let's TikTok for you. Don't get on there. (laughs) (laughs) Deanna told you not to do it. YouTube too, you know? Like it's, Uh, because he started like as a, I think Mr. B started as a YouTube creator. I was, I read this other profile of this other big, like millionaire YouTube creator. I forget his Mm -hmm. freaking name, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, But yeah, they just like have antics and make a lot of money from them. And I'm like, what? Okay. I mean, it's nice that when they like give them to other people, like I've yes. seen people be like, uh, will you trade me everything you bought for what's in this bag and won't tell them and then they'll get the bag and it's like thousands of dollars. And I'm like, that could be the mean a lot to someone. But also, I don't know when you're doing it for it feels like you're doing it for clout. But I guess that's just the name of the game now. <laughs> that's the social media biz, I guess. It is. Onward, magical friends. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without without talking about representations of race, class, gender, and ability. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. Um, so Nina is Ace, and I think in a way, I cannot remember the name of the main character. That main character was as well. I tried to look up if Darcy Little Badger was, but I could not find that information for sure. So, <laughs> no. Also, maybe she does not want that information out and about, <laughs> which is fine. We love to see even just like the, you know, a passing mention and just being like, yeah, this is part of the mm-hmm. character and that's fine. Yeah, exactly. We also see that like there's like a working class consciousness um, happening in the book. Like there's 
explicit conversations about money and fan- finances. And we see Nina's mom has to like take seasonal work on a scientific ship in order to, mm-hmm. you know, make sure to support the family. And then we also see like a lot of like doing this care work for the grandmother who lives in a more rural area and can't leave their home, her home. Yeah. There's just like intergenerational and interspecies collaboration and interdependence all over. And we just, we love to see it. Yeah. And I, we didn't write it in here, but I was just thinking about it right now, how we didn't have like a shitty parent trope in this book or in a Latsaway, which is kind of funny. I feel like so many YA books have been like, one parent is dead and the other one is evil. Let's see how this child deals with this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So nice to have good parents, you Yay. know? Yay. <laughs> Okay, it's time for Shipwrecked, finally. That was quick. So yeah, we're going to talk about asexuality, except we're not because we talked about that just now. Sexuality, (laughs) sex, romance, and relationships. Except we're not going to talk about any of that, really, just relationships. And we're not really going to do any shipping either. So like, not that we're into hierarchies really here or comparing or whatever, but friendship is the best ship. It's just like... Okay, but also we talk about things being the best all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's fair enough. We have have opinions. We have preferences. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I love that friendship was essentially the core, the core relationship that like the, the novel is meditating about. It seemed like to me and Ollie at the beginning is just like, some things are worth protecting with your life. And it's like, it's so true. Yes. So sweet. Protect yeah. those toads. Protect those toads. Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind and kill your darlings. Um, Something that I feel like maybe belongs here is the discussion of the dual POV. I think Darcy did a fantastic job writing from both Nina and Ollie's perspectives in ways that felt real, even as they lived in two different worlds. Their voices were very distinct. And I know we read a lot of dual POV novels and we don't always comment on like that aspect of it. But something about those two characters almost felt like they were written by two different people because they were just done so well. And I think that must be really difficult to do as an author. So I really appreciated that. Totally. Um, totally different note, but it is the cutest, brightest, lo- naked book. Oh, I didn't know. That is so it's cute. It's bright orange, right? And on one side, there is all of the little animal friends. And on the other side, you see them in their human forms. Oh my god! But they have like little, like you can see like Ollie's glasses, right? Yeah. Are there on him, or like brightest swings are on his head? It's very cute. Or the coyote sister's ears. It's very cute. Oh, I love that. I usually take like the the dust jacket. Is that what it's called in publishing terms? Yeah. You would know. Mm-hmm. You're the professional TM. <laughs> um, I usually take that off because I don't like to like wrinkle it or whatever if mm-hmm. I'm reading and I I loved that this book was like so eye-catching and adorable yeah. it just made me want to pick it up so props to designers yeah also a good time to mention I should have mentioned at the beginning of the episode that I listened to the audiobook which was really well done um, and I know a lot of libraries have like unlimited copies of it like lots of people can check it out at the same time because it won so many awards so oh, nice check it out if you want to it was really good yeah And on this kind of note of like publishing talk, it seems like, I mean, just like it takes a lot of care to put together a book that looks like this without the dust jacket on as well. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. attention to detail and the like quality of the pages was really nice, actually. And I just kind of noticed and just I did a little bit of look up 
about Levine Cardito and it just seems like kind of a rad company. And I think just, it would maybe be like a growth edge or a challenge for us to potentially to like branch out and see in future seasons and see if we can curate some, some books by more like indie and small press publishers. And like, it's just a different parameter that could maybe mix it up, uh, get us, away from the big five and see because we're kind of like i don't know i feel like we get a good handle of like what the kind of trends are and stuff yeah. that they're like looking for and might be interesting to like compare to yeah. and see what's happening in other areas of the publishing space so i don't know just put that in there yeah no i think that's a good idea i was just looking at the um uh website for this i didn't know the company was started by our Ar- Ar- arthur, <laughs> arthur levine. a levine right um so interesting very interesting. Yeah. So started by an author, right? And um, is no. he not? I don't. No, no, no. He, no. he yeah, he worked as a publisher, and um, it, there's an imprint of Scholastic called Arthur That's A. Right. Levine Books. That's right. Um, That's what I know him from. Yes, he has published some very popular books. So yeah. <laughs> so interesting to see. Yeah, these other. I think we're. That's not the first time I've heard of someone like going off and doing like, I feel like Lee and Lowe. Mm-hmm. Lee and Lowe books. Right. And I don't know. I feel like I've heard of other ones being like people going off and establishing an imprint. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Also more publishing talk, which isn't related to this book, but I do research now who the publishers <laughs> are for books. Um, the HarperCollins union workers are on strike. And this is something that's getting, I don't know, a lot of, uh, talk and we'll see by the time this episode comes out what what the situation is but it's mm-hmm. mid-january as you said at the top and yeah, yeah i so. think we're almost two months into the strike mm-hmm. so so yeah we will not be doing any herbert collins books until that's all worked out so yeah <laughs> yep sorry that's- not sorry you know i mean i, I do feel yeah. for the authors because i think that's a really tough situation to be in when people are not reviewing and talking about your books especially for um you know first-time authors debut authors so and it's not to say that we won't make exceptions for the yeah yeah exactly especially for authors of color right (laughs) but yeah it's just um it's not good gotta pay people so they can live (laughs) exactly and at the same time i always appreciate like my conversations with you because you push my analysis to be more intersectional and further and be like I remember the the conversation we were having about unions and the Haymarket riot and mm-hmm. Chicago and what was this friggin' book called? The City Beautiful. Mm, yeah. And about how like this conversation about scabbing and stuff is actually way more complicated, right? Because who is brought in? It's mm-hmm. people who are more oppressed, more marginalized, yeah. um, black people, people of color to come mm-hmm. and do this work. And it sounds, and it's just like that was in the early, the late 1800s. Right. And it's just yeah. like, it's n- not necessarily like not that much has changed, right? Because it's like they're bringing in contract workers, contingent labor, Mm -hmm. and this might, you know, as you said to me in a conversation off air, like that might be someone's like chance to get into publishing if they've never had it before or whatever. And also not to mention like they want people to live in New York, but what if that's not possible for people? So are they like (laughs) potentially hiring more disabled people, you Mm -hmm. know, or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, multiply marginalized folks um, by virtue of, changing this but like i'm not supporting that or i'm I'm not like advocating yeah. for it necessarily i'm just thinking like you know there's like i don't know people being affected on like the main people at the top are who we should be like freaking yeah. pressuring and like yeah i don't know 
Yeah, but it's also hard because publishing is a majority white space, um, which probably means the unions are majority white people and unions have a history of keeping black, indigenous and people of color out of them um, or being used against them. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So it's like it's it's difficult because I do like feel for people who are taking that contract work um, at the moment. Like, as you said, like I you know talked about, like this might be their one chance to get into publishing which is so hard to do as a person of color um or a person who's from like a lower socioeconomic status because you have right. to be in new york you have to take internships where you don't get paid um i think lee and low books have tried to change that but i remember mm -hmm. looking at that when i was getting my master's in book publishing and they were offering like 11 dollars an hour and you can't live in new york city on that right um for the summer like it's really open to people who have wealth and who are white so mm -hmm. yeah it's a really complicated issue um i'm not like anti-union although i am some and union like cop unions <laughs> there are bad unions there are good unions <laughs> fair enough fair enough yes important nuance important nuance yeah but um yeah it's a it's a it's a weird situation with the strike going on at harper collins i don't know what will come of it but yeah. publishers do need to pay better because the starting pay is low i think as low as like 24,000 a year to live in New York city. And that's just not livable. No, you know? no. If you don't already have money or someone to support you. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, so tough. Yeah. Ugh. yeah. So yeah, we just wanted to like, not, we don't, you know, aren't that much proponent of hot takes, but we do do like lukewarm, <laughs> like my, like my tea nuance takes a little bit more on the podcast, but but that nuance is necessary. Like totally. it's good to talk about it from all the different sides. I think that's part of our, like our intersectional analysis of these books and the things that are going on is that like, we have to look at it from all sides to really like dig into it. You know, I don't know. Totally. So maybe no hot takes. Yeah. Lukewarm takes. <laughs> <laughs> takes that you have to reheat in the microwave seven times. <laughs> Before we end, it's time for real talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way, or did it make you interrogate a concept or system of trend or a trend that you hadn't before? And in our usual fashion, Kelly, go ahead. <laughs> um, I was actually like, when I was reading the book, I was paying attention to this particular aspect, and I was like, oh my god, I cannot wait to hear Jesse nerd out about this or nerd out <laughs> with her about it. So. The novel shows after the like the ragtag gang all gets together and crosses the the multiplane the multiverse or whatever. The novel is showing like they're figuring out how to help Ami and the novel shows Nina conducting research. And I love how it shows her using online terms like or online platforms, refining her search terms, vetting sources, synthesizing information and also using it to make informed decisions about like which actions to take and how to have the greatest impact. Um, I loved this and wanted to hear you riff as a librarian and professional in this area, hair toss, hair but toss. like also how important <laughs> it is to like model it for mm -hmm. young readers, you know? So like, yeah, I just wanted to put yeah. this out there and was stoked to riff on this with you. It's funny because I don't think I noticed it and maybe it's <laughs> because this is how I do research. Right. Um, I, I love that you brought this up because I think that oftentimes we think that young people just know how to use the internet because like not you and I, but you know, what are they now? Gen alpha? Like they're born with the internet at home. They never had dial up. Like they never had to hear that 
noise or oh like, my god i'm hearing it right now maybe I i'll know. put it in post-production so everyone has to hear it <laughs> or like you know when you were like on the internet and then someone picked up the phone in your house and then like your, your internet, internet was gone it was yeah <laughs> so like i think we think they know how to do all these things but i think we kind of see this or i see this on tiktok where you know people are just can be misinformed or they get bad information because they don't necessarily know how to go check their sources and that's right thing. um so i appreciate that this was put in here and that you brought it up because i didn't notice it but this is a good way to do search and also a good reminder to librarians and teachers if they listen to this podcast um that when you're doing these searches you should help them do them for themselves so that they understand how to do it instead of doing it for them and I think that can be really hard especially when you're in a library and it's busy and like you know but it's mm-hmm. just like such a necessary skill and such a good way to like give that ability to someone to do this work for themselves instead of always needing to like you know ask for help totally um, that's one of the things I was gonna a follow-up question I was actually gonna ask you is that like I know you've been in the, a space for several years now where you're teaching people how mm-hmm. to do these things, mm-hmm. you know, or like about the basics of information science and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just curious if there's like, I don't know, core like misconceptions that you notice or like areas where you think skills need to be de- built or where you are, you, where you end up focusing in your actual yeah. class. I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, for me, like I usually end up having to show them how to do like library searches, like from the university library. And this is the case for university and public libraries. But I don't think people understand that like the libraries have like their own dictionaries, basically. So like when you're doing searches, it'll be much more helpful to use the terms that are already built into the system. Now, the problem with those is that there are, you know, lots of racism, misogyny, you know, homophobia, like all of the things are built into those systems but sometimes that helps me um like I will start with a search term and then you can like you know open a new tab with other search terms and search through those things and then kind Mm -hmm. of cross things off your list to see what best worked for you so that's usually where I help the students like doing those subject searches um especially in a university setting is like a game changer (laughs) and teaching how to like whittle down what you actually want to know right and how to ask that question and find that information or even just like limiting things like, do you need book sources for this paper? Like, is a professor requiring of that of you? Which they should not, but, you know, or do you need sources from the last 10 years? Here's how you, mm, you know, filter. limit your options. So those things, you know, or like, what can you access online from home? Like, how do you put a book on hold from the library? How do you get an article that the library doesn't have access to? Do not pay for those articles. Ask your library for them. They can get them from other libraries. So there's just right. like a lot of skills that I don't think people or like a lot of things available to people from the library that they don't realize they have. So um, and I think librarians need to do a better job of making that information known to people. Well, there you go. Full circle, library everyone <laughs> talking about knowledge and who should have access to it, etc. <laughs> it's full circle. Um, card questions. Let me get the cards. Oh, I forgot about card questions. All right. Sound effects. effects. All right. All right. All right. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Great Matthew McConaughey impression. (laughs) Not even purposeful. (laughs) Ooh, I like this. Okay. What director would you choose to make the film of this book? Oh, um, I would have Darcy Little Badger choose her amazing indigenous feminist director of her choice. I think that's a good idea. I'm going to guess like 
reservation dogs probably has like a i don't know if they have multiple directors for multiple episodes but that would probably be a good place to look i thought of that book because it was you know this book is young people like on their adventures um reservation dogs is a little more dark but i have enjoyed so like i've only watched the first season but i really enjoyed seeing like the pieces of like the culture that might not be as well known to other people so yeah totally look 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 there (laughs) all right let's see one another one another Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm mm-hmm how did the characters change from the beginning to the end of the book? Hmm. I would say that Nina found confidence in herself um, with making her videos and those things. Mm-hmm. And I think the like the crew from, you know, the worlds of monsters and spirits, um, the animal people, I think they all just like became closer to each other and learned to trust each other and, you know, the importance of friendship. I don't think that the characters necessarily changed like a ton. Yeah. I don't think, you know. Yeah, I agree with you. Good answer. Should we do one more? <laughs> Let's do one more. <laughs> what kind of mood did the book put you in? Um uh it made me want to save all the toads <laughs> in my area. No, it just made me like, I don't know, be like, okay, yeah. Pay attention to what's important and what's like around you. I guess. Yeah. It made me feel happy. I like the story a lot. Um, and I just think that Darcy Little Badger writes like um, comfort characters, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. Yay. Thanks for listening to the Library Coven. We've got a bit of an Equique Amezi miniseries next in the queue. So watch out over the next few weeks for a re-released episode on Pet, followed by a new episode about the prequel novel, Bitter. As always, we'd love to be in conversation with you, Magica folks. Let us know what you think of the episode, anything we missed, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments. It would be nice not to have a spam comment for once. (laughs) (laughs) You can also chat to us on Twitter, which we're not there very often, um, or Instagram, which Jesse drives and does an amazing (laughs) job. It's like a frigate. It's like Max Verstappen over there in the sea. Wow. Wow. Why would you compare me to Max Verstappen? I'm sorry. It's a pedestal to fall off of. Never mind. I take it back. I take it back. (laughs) Lewis Hamilton. It's Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> no one's going to understand what we're talking about at all. They're going to be like, what? Who are these people? Actually, they might know Lewis. He's very famous. Anyways, you can subscribe to the Library Coven on the podcast app of your choice. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show and spread the word to other cool people. If you're able to support our labor financially, you can make a one-time donation to us on Coffee. You can support us monthly on Patreon or by shopping at our bookstop, <laughs> bookshop.org affiliate page. Until next time, stay magical. <laughs> do, 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 do.